And brothers and sisters, I trust that your celebration of Christmas this year was filled with his peace and his joy. Well, my wife thinks I'm a word nerd. Now, it's true that at 8 a.m. each morning, I get a text notification from dictionary.com announcing the word of the day. And it's also true that if I find that word intriguing, I may try it out on her my earliest opportunity, sometimes even before her first cup of coffee in the morning. Nonetheless, I do think word nerd is a, is a bit over the top. But today, I do want us once again to focus our attention on two words, and not because they're word of the day material. On the contrary, they're both quite common and ordinary words. Pastor Allen introduced us to these two words in his message a couple weeks ago entitled, A Weary World Rejoices. As he pointed out, the amazing thing about these two words is is not that they're used in the Bible, but rather that the Bible uses them together as part of a single thought. Common sense suggests these two words never belong together. Now, I ran into another example of this very same thing recently when I was talking with one of the volunteers at The Nest. Many of you know that The the Nest is a store that sells donated children's clothing and merchandise here in our local business district on East Ohio Street. It's a nonprofit store owned by our ministry partner, Women's Choice Network. But ACAC was instrumental with financial support and especially with volunteers and in helping Women's Choice build out the nest and ultimately open this fascinating little store just before Thanksgiving. And I call it fascinating because the nest is really a unique place. The clothing and merchandise is quite inexpensive but, but, but very nice. The nest describes it as nearly new. But it's a resale store which immediately conjures up images of thrift shops and clutter. You know what I'm talking about. But the nest is different. Its look and its displays and its quaint ambiance are so unresale-like that it surprises everyone who walks through the doors. So the Nest volunteer was trying to describe this dichotomy. She said, by the look and feel of it, this store is more like a boutique in Shadyside than a thrift shop. It's like a resale boutique for children's clothing. Resale boutique. Whoever puts those words together, but together they capture the essence of the Nest beautifully. Well, in our study of God's Word today, we're going to focus once again on two words that both play a significant role in the Christmas story, but only the miracle of Emmanuel, God with us, would later allow James, the brother of Jesus, to use them with obvious tension in the very same sentence. 
Let me begin by reading two brief passages from the Christmas story, each of which illustrates one of these two words. First from Luke's account, chapter 2, verse 10. This is the angel's well-known announcement to unsuspecting shepherds. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. The first of these two words is the word joy. Joy for all the people, a great joy. How do we know and experience this joy today? And then from Matthew's gospel, in its account of the wise men, in Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. Now when they, the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. The second word is illustrated, though not specifically mentioned in Matthew's account of the dark of night escape by Joseph, Mary, and their baby to Egypt. It's the word trials. The Christmas story is full of trials. Mary's unexpected pregnancy, Joseph's reaction to that news, the untimely trip to Bethlehem, oversubscribed hotels, and now this, a tyrannical king wants their precious child dead. Now, let's bring those two words together as we read our text today from the letter of James, chapter 1, verse 2. He said this, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. Two weeks ago, Pastor Allen focused our attention on the idea of trials and other synonyms for that word, pain and suffering. God uses trials to make us veterans, he reminded us. In a very real and life-changing way, Emmanuel's followers can rejoice in suffering because we know God uses it in us to produce a steady, authentic, and confident faith. Today, we want to look at the other half of that puzzling union, that word joy. What is so unique about this great joy that we can experience it today, even in the midst of trials? The title of our message today is Inexpressible Joy. Would you bow your heads and look to the Lord with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we offer ourselves to you today. And we say, speak to us from your word. Let your truth settle in our hearts and bear fruit. Lord, we want to hear from you and be transformed by you in these moments. And we ask that you would do so. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we turn our heart's attention to God's word today, May the Lord be with you. Well, life beset by trials is not the exception, but the rule in a broken world. 
Trials are our norm in this life. And they come upon us in various forms, as James reminded us in our text today. There are, of course, the normal garden variety trials. A couple of weeks ago, as many of you will remember, we had our first real snowfall here in the Pittsburgh area. I had planned to get an early start into the office on that day, but a morning Zoom call appeared on my computer schedule, so, so I decided to take it from home and, and then leave immediately thereafter. Would you brush the snow off my car and get it warmed up for me? My wife, Lynn, called from the kitchen. Well, actually, she had lent her car to my son, so I went out to start his car, the one she was using, cranking up the heater, brushing off the snow. There, I thought, she's all set. Wrong. You see, years, years earlier, some nameless engineer at the Ford Motor Company had decided to put an automatic locking mechanism on their Ford Escapes when the car was parked with the engine running. No problem, said Lynn. I'll call AAA for you. No, you can't, I replied, the anger rising in my voice, because I'll be on a Zoom call. Well, you'll figure it out, she said. I'm taking your car to work. <laughs> and then, as if to add insult to injury, the car's engine stalled, uh, stalled, but the heater kept running and killed the battery. Garden variety trials, you experience them too, don't you? Probably on a regular basis. And then there are the trials that challenge a whole community, or in the case of this pandemic, the whole global community. Indeed, we live today in a weary world, as Pastor Allen noted. When we consider the word trials, however, the, the kind that we most often think of are, are those that are deeply personal and painful. A serious injury or illness the pain of a broken relationship, a failed business or lost job, or the death of a loved one. In our congregation, just in these last couple of weeks, several families are experiencing the trial of putting Christmas plans on hold to instead plan a funeral for a loved one. Trials continually remind us that in this life, Christians are not immune from pain, tribulation, and suffering. There is no operation warp speed to vaccinate us from the trials of life. It's believed that Joseph and Mary spent the first three years of Jesus' life in voluntary exile in Egypt. And the writers of the New Testament all agree, as we learned two weeks ago, that the experience of suffering in this life should be an expectation for Christians, not a surprise. But it's one thing to know that my lot in life will be to experience trials. It's another thing to know that Jesus enables me to experience joy even in the midst of them. How is this possible? Well, on the one hand, the Lord does allow us to see and understand our pain differently as we walk with Him. But there's a second and equally important reason the Bible uses the words, the words trials and joy in the same sentence. That second reason is this. 
The world seeks happiness. It confuses with joy. But God's joy is drawn from a far deeper well than the world's happiness. Brothers and sisters, the joy that James and others spoke of, saying count it all joy when you face various trials, is drawn from a deeper well than the world's happiness. Happiness is based on happenings, circumstances that make us feel good. Trials, by their very nature, challenge us with circumstances that are hard and often painful. They make us feel bad. In the midst of trials, happiness will almost always elude our grasp. But joy, of the kind the Bible talks about, is a different animal altogether. So different, in fact, that the Apostle Peter would describe it as inexpressible joy. 1 Peter 1.8 Now, the Scriptures speak of experiencing joy in all kinds of circumstances. There's the joy of weddings and feasts, joy in the harvest, the joy of being delivered from danger, joy in worship and in the presence of the Lord. Joy is connected to giving and justice and answered prayer and unity among the brethren. But the word joy is also connected in the Scriptures to words like suffering, pain, tribulation, and tears. The writer of the book of Hebrews commends Christ followers for, listen to this, for joyfully accepting the plundering of their property. Hebrews 10.34. Joyfully accepting, though I doubt any were happy. And here's one of my favorites from the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He cited the example of the churches in Macedonia in writing, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Isn't that incredible? Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in generous giving. When was the last time you heard somebody connect the idea of abundant joy with extreme poverty? Though we often use the words joy and happiness interchangeably, it's obvious that a biblical understanding of joy is far different from the world's understanding of happiness. God's joy is drawn from a far deeper well. But what exactly is this joy that the Bible speaks of? Well, to be honest, as as we've seen, the, the word is used so many times and in so many different contexts in Scripture that it's really hard to reduce joy down to a short, pithy definition. But relying on the richness of the Scriptures and borrowing from the wisdom of others, for our purposes today, I've distilled the idea of biblical joy down to three distinct statements. Together, I believe they help us to grasp its essence. Number one, 
Joy is an inner sense of con contentment, confidence, and hope that resides deep in the soul of a Jesus follower. In other words, joy is a deep emotion of the soul born of faith in Jesus that gives rise in us this sense of contentment and confidence and hope. Number two, joy is a gift of God sustained by His indwelling Holy Spirit that fills a faithful heart with godly gladness. Unlike temporal happiness, this godly gladness isn't fleeting. It isn't here today and gone tomorrow because it's God's gift. And here's number three. Joy is a holy optimism that abides in people who have found in Jesus their reason for being. And by His grace are able to view the present even its trials and its pain, in light of His promises for a blessed future. Joy is a holy optimism. I like that insight from pastor and author Warren Wearsby. But biblical joy is even more than that. It's a, it's a holy optimism rooted in God's plan for all eternity and the knowledge for some reason explainable only by grace. God has assigned a place for me in that plan. So the Bible speaks of all those things in speaking of joy. Contentment, confidence, hope, godly gladness, holy optimism born, uh, that, that resides deep in our soul. How, in you, how can you and I experience that kind of joy? That's really the question, isn't it? Well, let's begin by suggesting something we shouldn't do. Let me encourage you not to go home and pray, Lord, please give me more joy. Don't pray that way. Because it, it just won't work. And the reason is simple. You see, joy isn't some kind of spiritual product that we order on Amazon Divine with two second-day free shipping. Not at all. Rather, joy is the byproduct of a deeper walk, a deeper faith, and a deeper experience of a person. His name is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. He's the good news of a great joy announced by Christmas angels. And as you draw from the deeper well named Jesus, He will fill your cup with His joy. But how does one draw from that deeper well? Well, as is so often the case, a good place to start often involves a transformation in our thinking. Sometimes our faith journey looks a lot like that car in my driveway. The keys are in it, the car's running, but it's not going anywhere because a faulty knowledge has left the driver on the outside looking in. Stinking thinking, I think, is what Pastor Rock used to call it. As we seek a deeper walk with Jesus that we might know his joy. The, off, the issue often isn't the need to know new and different things about him. 
Rather, it's that we need to know the old things differently. What am I suggesting? Well, just this. That if we are to know the joy that Jesus gives, our knowledge of Him must move beyond the physical chemistry of thoughts in our brain into a life-transforming, experiential knowledge deep in our soul. Drawing from a deeper well will require us to know things differently because we know them in the depth of our soul. For the purpose of illustration today, I just want us to look at three foundational truths that as Christians, most of us know. I mean, listen, up here, we check that box. But in each case, I'd like to ask this. If we knew this truth differently, if we knew it as a deep assurance and experiential knowledge in our souls, would we find Jesus' joy welling up within us? The first of these foundational truths comes from Paul's letter to the Christian believers in the church in Rome, where he wrote this, If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31. I mean, it's such a simple question we're almost tempted to to quickly move past it. But what might it look like to know that simple and profound truth differently? Not up here, but down here in the depth of our soul. You see, Paul was actually asking a rhetorical question, which means it's a question with an obvious answer. In a sense, it's not really a question at all, but rather a statement or a declaration in disguise. And Paul's declaration was this. God is for us. It doesn't matter who's against us because this much we know. God is for us. Now, knowing that differently would free us to personalize it. God is for me. Would you take just a moment right where you are at home and speak that truth into your own soul? God is for me. The God who created the universe and holds it in place. The God who shaped me in my mother's womb and knows my inward being. The God whose birth we celebrate around the world in this season. Who came to give his life for you and for me. This amazing God is for me. What does it matter who's against me? Knowing differently. Even now, you may begin to feel a fresh sense of confidence and hope stirring in your soul. God is for me. You're drawing from a deeper well. Now, here's a pop quiz. I ask this question of all of our Pittsburgh Bible Institute, PBI students, in one of their classes. You're a pastor, I explain. And one day, you receive a heart-wrenching call from a faithful couple in your church. 
They had come home that day to find their sweet 11-year-old daughter dead from a self-inflicted wound. Their daughter loved Jesus, and she was so full of life. But her simple note said that she was upset after receiving bad grades in school and she was embarrassed to face her parents. And she was also having a tough time making new friends in a new school building. And in her confused adolescent mind, she didn't see any alternatives. Now you're their pastor, and this family is facing this trial. They've asked you to do the funeral and bring some word of comfort. What have you got? Of course, the answer is, you don't have anything. But Jesus has what this family needs. And brothers and sisters, He is still for them, even in this, even in their darkest hour. Someone who attended that funeral reported that It was an amazing experience. The church was filled with people grieving, and it was filled with tears. And yet, in the midst of such overwhelming sorrow, there was such hope, and even an unexplainable joy to be found. The pastor had spoken words of comfort to family and friends from from Romans chapter 8 including this thought, God is for you, even in your pain, even on a day like this. Happiness, no. But count it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials. Well, the second foundational truth comes from the sweet singer of Israel, King David. God does not deal with us according to our sins, wrote David, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12. In beautiful poetic terms, David assures us that among God's attributes are his great capacity to love and forgive. We know this. This knowledge has encouraged the hearts of believers anywhere, everywhere. But knowing at a deeper soul level the amazing truth of God's love and forgiveness can Give rise in us to a godly gladness that can help see us through even the darkest of days. At least, that was the testimony of a successful Chicago attorney named Horatio Spafford in the late 1800s. Though you may not recognize him by name, the words of his song, It is well with my soul. And the essence of his story may be familiar to you. Having recently received word that his four daughters, four, four, had perished together in a tragic accident at sea, Spafford penned the words of his now famous hymn. 
Consider with me, would you, the words of the third verse of that hymn. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Church's four daughters had just perished. Happiness? No. Inexpressible joy drawn from a deeper well. Spafford knew the reality of God's love and forgiveness differently. Not just in his head, but in the very depth of his soul. And it gave rise in him to such a a fire of confidence and hope in Jesus that not even the darkest of circumstances could dim its glow. The last foundational truth I'd like to draw our attention to today is is so obvious that I almost, I almost hate to mention it. But I, I, I felt constrained to include it because amidst all the cares of this life, it is so easy to forget that we're, we were created to live forever in the next. If we really believe in the depth of our soul that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us in eternity, and that he is coming again to take us there, it should change everything. And yet that's exactly what he promised. John 14, verses 2 through 4. Have you ever recorded a Steelers game because you were busy when the game was actually being played, but wanting to later feel the, the same tension and thrill of watching it live, for hours you purposely avoided any place or discussion that might give away the score. Well, you and I both know invariably what happens. Somebody spills the beans, right? Hey, how about them Steelers, 10-0? It wasn't pretty, but they got a win. (laughs) Now, be honest. Doesn't that knowledge change the way that you then watch the game. Of course it does. If I already know that the Steelers won, I'm not worried when Ben throws that interception. The anxiety's gone. I know how this story ends. Brothers and sisters in Jesus, we know how our life story ends. We know how this world's story ends. So the anxiety that others feel every moment of every day shouldn't be dogging our steps. Anxiety in life, anxiety about death, not for us. Church, Elvis has already left the building, and we know who wins. This truth should birth a holy optimism in all of us who follow Jesus, a key evidence of the joy that Jesus gives. 
If it hasn't, maybe we need to know this truth differently. God wants you to know His inexpressible joy, but knowing it will require that you turn your eyes upon Jesus. And when you do, you'll find that the things of this earth grow strangely dim. You see, the earthly trials that might steal your happiness won't be able to touch your joy because it's drawn from a deeper well. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet trials of various kinds. Beloved, we can see trials differently than the world does because we know that they make us veterans. But we can also know a joy that the world can never know. God's inexpressible joy. The Apostle Paul prayed this simple prayer for the believers in the church of Rome. Let me pray it over you as I conclude. Would you bow your heads? ACAC Church family, in this season, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. God bless you, church.